welcome back everybody to another episode of Two Guys, One Topic. I'm Liam. And I'm Ollie. And for those of you that don't know, or for any new listeners, each episode we take a topic that we know very little about and we give ourselves a week to read and research all about it. The idea being that we do the hard work and then we share what we feel are the most important pieces of information with you, the listeners. Yeah, and so you know, we are most certainly not experts in anything we talk about on this pod. This is just a summary of our findings and our research, but hopefully by sharing some of that knowledge with you, we can all learn just a little bit more about a whole load of things. Definitely. Right then, let's get on with this week's topic, which is... The International Space Station. Okay, Ollie, this week's episode was your choice. So if we've got any new listeners, particularly like listening to this one, each season, one of us gets to choose an episode and the other one just has to learn about it regardless. And you chose the International Space Station because you seem to love space stuff. So... (laughs) Why did you pick it? And what do you, what do you know about the ISS before we started? You're right. I didn't really realise this, but I do seem to like space stuff, don't I? And I realised I didn't know much about it. I think it came up in the news or something a couple of weeks ago. And I thought to myself, oh, I'd be quite interested to actually learn and realise what the International Space Station is all about. Um, but funny you saying about liking space. I remember when I was in year nine, we had some sort of career development day that we had to go to. I remember them asking me, what did you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an astronaut. And I got laughed at. He <laughs> 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 said to me, that's not going to happen. Fix something else. I was like, all right, okay. Um, so yeah, I think I, I do like space stuff. I didn't know what the International Space Station was. And I wanted to learn about it a little bit more. How about you? Did you know anything about it? Nope. Just, I, Nope, just that it's floating round. It's like a giant satellite, and there's some astronauts living on it. And every now and then, you might, you know, you might see a, a clip on on the news or on YouTube or something. You know, we've got Tim Peake, the British astronaut, was a bit of a big deal up there, wasn't he? Ra- yes. He ran the London Marathon on a tra- on a treadmill that was while it. he was up there. You know, you see videos of them eating stuff that's floating around, but like, I had no idea what it's for. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, no, it's something that, that you hear and no read idea. about, but but not entirely sure. So should we just cut straight to the chase then and just let everybody know if if people are listening and they don't actually know what it is, what actually is it then, Liam? Right. Dead simple. It's just a laboratory in space. That's it. Isn't it? Isn't and it? As far as I can tell, as far as I can tell, and it'd be interesting, it, it, you know, I think I think we should go early and tell everybody we have got a fantastic interview lined up. Yes, uh, unreal is our interview going to come out on Friday, and it's going to be great to ask some of these questions. But yes, as far as I can tell, it's essentially a floating laboratory, four hundred kilometers up in the air in space. Yeah, it is, but it's. I suppose let's do it a little bit of justice. So it's it's like a world class, state of the art. <laughs> orbiting oh, laboratory it's like it is you know top notch that, that's out there and it's also yes yeah, it's, it's a habitable satellite and i think as you're just saying saying there how high up it is it's in low earth orbit 
where it's uh, where it is. But yeah, it's basically somewhere since 1998 that it's been up there, and for the best part of 20 odd years, we've been doing experiments up there to try and further understand how we might interact when we go up into space and how other animals might interact whilst they're up there as well yeah it's the it's the zero gravity part that's the big deal isn't it yeah you know you can do things in zero gravity and you can observe things in zero gravity that you you just can't do on earth anywhere so unless you go on one of those planes that just keeps dropping you know those planes where you can have zero gravity for like a minute but i'm not sure doing an experiment in that constantly is not going to work um so yeah, it's that zero gravity thing is the big deal. It's it's, it's selling point, I guess. Um, but I've got a few interesting facts about it. You you probably got some as well. Do you, do you know it's traveling? And we learned this actually when we did our space debris episode, our space junk de- episode. It's traveling at seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. It is absolutely zipping around. And another way of putting that is it's doing five miles every second. So it's. It's absolutely stonking around. As Liam said, it's 250 miles away from Earth. This bit puzzled me a little bit. Do you know how long it takes to get there from Earth? Well, it's 250 miles, right? Now, a rocket must go well fast. So I can't imagine it takes anywhere near as long as you think it does. <laughs> yeah, like, it takes. Like a couple hours. It, I bet it's not very long. It takes six hours to get there. I don't know, in my head, just when you think of space, you think that everything's really far away. But yeah, it only takes six hours to get up there. So yeah, 250 miles away, takes six hours to get there. And it flies around the world every 93 minutes, doesn't it? So it's zipping around the world. Yeah, which means it it observes 90% of our planet every day. So every because it you know it doesn't just go around the same part of the Earth as yeah. a ring it, you know it's it's because the Earth is obviously rotating and all those sorts of things um, it ends up covering about ninety percent of the Earth but you're just saying about stuff in space is far away now remember stuff in space is like millions of miles away this is only yes. two hundred and fifty miles it's yeah. not really anything as far yeah. as space goes yeah 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 it's basically nowhere <laughs> yeah yeah completely so yeah just vertical straight up and then the other thing then about saying about it, it zipping around. Um, and how fast it's going. So it makes 16 orbits of the Earth every 24 hours. So it means that it sees 16 sunrises and sunsets as it's spinning around the world, which is well, it's pretty cool. That'll, uh, that'll, that'll throw your time off, won't it, when you're up in space? You know, <laughs> yeah. so much for jet lag. You just see the sun come up and down every whatever, <laughs> every 90 minutes. I'm not sure what day it is anymore. <laughs> Um, so it's been there. It has been up in space uh, you, as of now, 8,528 days and 13 hours and maybe a little bit more, which is 23 years and a little bit. If you go onto NASA's website, there's a clock just ticking, like how long it's been there. Continually okay. habited. Okay. Um, it's about the size of an American football pitch. Yeah. If you imagine like, um, you know, an American football pitch, which... I don't know how much bigger they are than an, uh, than an English football pitch. I can't imagine there's too much difference. If you imagine, no, it's it's like 110 yards, isn't it? 120 yards, the two end zones. But yeah, and it weighs. You got that written down? So what was it? A million pounds? Yeah, nine hundred thirty thousand pounds or something. So yeah, getting on for a million pounds. Um, do, you can see it from Earth as well. Do you know that? Yeah, I did read this, and I with you saying about it zipping around and it covering 
90% of the habitable planet, they reckon it's quite likely that people could have seen this as well. So it's bigger than what I thought it would be by saying it's about the size of an American football pitch or a, an English football pitch. But because it was so big and because of the, the solar panels that it's got on it, it actually reflects a lot of light. It's the third brightest thing in the sky. And so at dusk or dawn, it is quite likely that if you're looking in the right place, that you're able to actually see it traveling through the sky, which is pretty cool. And even on the, the NASA website, you can have a little look and it can you can put in where you are, your postcode or your zip code, and it will then tell you when you can expect to see it and which sort of direction to be looking up in the sky, which uh, I'm going to give that a go. That's pretty cool. Trying to take a picture of that. <laughs> Get it on Instagram because it doesn't <laughs> like a, a tiny dot where you know you have to see it. Because but... uh, Venus is pretty bright, isn't it? It's, it's like it... Um, it, it rivals so Venus, the planet Venus is really bright, and you, you can see that quite a lot as well. It's um, the third brightest thing. So the moon is the brightest thing, then Venus, and then the International Space Station are okay. the three. Okay, so we've sort of touched on it there. Why was it built? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you said a few things about it, like, but what, yeah, why do they even build it? So so we, we've we've explained that it's it's to be doing science experiments on it, but I was looking into why it was built, and I, I think it was more down to sort of the space race that we were talking that we've talked about previously, and about the U.S. and Russia wanting to get out into space, and it was a project that the Americans first wanted to start getting out there in the 1980s. It was called Freedom. And it was Ronald Reagan who, he was the person who actually authorised NASA from coming into existence. Okay. And they said, yeah, let's let's almost show our space credentials. And Russia, they were doing the same thing. They were saying, let's see who can get out there first and get this orbiting space laboratory to be showing who was the, the better nation out of the two of them. And so they, they went on this this endeavor to try and build it within 10 years, but they then realized the costs of it were spiraling. It was getting out of control. And they then decided, actually, we should try and join up with some other countries and build it collaboratively instead. Which is basically what they did. That's yeah. basically what happened, didn't they? They all, they all essentially, it, it got built in pieces, didn't it? It gets built. Everybody builds a bit and sends it up but it's really international isn't it it's actually like a, a collaboration it ended up you saying about it's a cooperative program between nasa russia's space agency canada's japan's and the european space agencies those five sort of agencies together build it right it's very inter very um connected international did you realize that i don't think i'd ever properly thought about the International Space Station and how it would have been put together, almost like Lego. It would have been put, it's been put together in space, like the biggest Lego set ever. Yeah. Hasn't it? Yeah. Well, first of all, the clues in the name International, realising everywhere, you know, because I think, I, I think a misconception is that it's, it's NASA's, it's a NASA thing. NASA yeah. is space. Therefore, this thing is American, if you like. Yes. Um, but, I think 
you know, the clue is in the name international, but realizing that it is actually this cooperative collaborative thing between five different agencies. Yeah. That, that was um, a bit of a shock, but yeah, putting it together, they all build bits on earth. These pieces, they call them nodes or like modules. These pieces have never met each other until they're traveling 17 and a half thousand miles an hour in space. <laughs> and then they sort of connect them all up. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty mad. It, it did make me think a little bit about our container shipping episode as well, where we then said that to yeah. get container ships out there, you then had to come up with this universal approach of getting all these container ships to yeah. interlock with all of the infrastructure around it. So I suppose that's what they did when they came up with this with this international agreement. So just so just so people know, the International Space Station, it's it's then made up, I think it's currently it's on 16. It's currently made up of 16 pressurized modules that come from different countries. So six of them are Russian, eight of them are from the US, and then a couple of other countries have, have got a few there. But if we go back to 1998, so the first module that went up, this was a Russian control module called yep. Zara. Zaria. Zaria. And that went up on the 20th of November in 1998. So Russia was up there first with their control module. And then it was a month later where the US, they sent up one called Unity. Then that, that node then connected on a month later. And that's where it then started to grow from there. Yeah, quite quickly, actually. In the next couple of years, they sent up quite a few pieces, uh, quite a few of these modules. And then about almost exactly two years later. So the first one you said went up in November 98. In November 2000 people went up there and and it's been habit um habited that's not the word what's the word well continuously habited. occupied it's been continuously <laughs> occupied since then rather than there's, another, there's another um liam can't work out the word ha- habitated that's not the word i don't know what the word is in habitat i don't know what the word is there's been people there <laughs> basically since november 2000 um, yeah. essentially there've been people on the space and then over time, I think they've, they've sent up 42 separate assembly flights. So separate, um, not necessarily, you know, they're not bringing up massive pieces every time. Like you said, there's only 16 particularly giant big nodes, but it went, 2011 was the last piece, the last main piece that yes. went up. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so essentially it was completed then. So, so just to say then, so they came up with this international agreement. Lots of other countries have got involved. The countries that are involved, as we've already said about the United States, which is NASA, you've got Russia that's involved. Their space program is called Roscosmos. You've then got Canada, which is the CSA, Canada Space Agency, Japan, JAXA, and then Europe, which is the ESA, the European Space Agency. And the European Space Agency, that lists about 10 or 12 countries as part of that. So, yeah, it's a real, real international effort lots of countries involved and they've all added different things. One of the things that I think Canada was particularly proud about was they sent up a massive robotic arm. I don't know if you you saw any of this. It's absolutely enormous, but it it can then be moved around and added to different parts of the the space station um, and can be used for different tests and everything that gets carried out. Yeah. And that arm led to like on earth things. And we'll get to it later. Like, like, what do we get out of it? But yeah, one of them is, is you know, the technology that we're using in space inevitably filters down to Earth again. Um, but yeah, so 
This international, do you, do you know how many, uh, how many visitors the space station has had? Yeah, just just over 250, is it? How many is it exactly? I think it's 253. Yeah, that's 253 it. from 19 different countries. Obviously, as you probably guess, the two most are the United States with 155 and Russia with 54. And then you've got Japan, Canada, Italy, France, Germany, all with sort of between 11 and 4. And then a whole bunch of countries with just one solitary astronaut each. Nice. And I was, I was reading that the astronauts, they'll typically stay on the International Space Station for about six months at a time. Yeah. And then yeah. it depends as and when a supply ship is going up to then take up more supplies or whatever it might be, or the next set of crew is going up about every six months that you'll then get switched out. Uh, there's an American, an American guy named Scott Kelly. He was up there. He took part in a whole year mission to uh, to see what would happen. And he was up there for 340 days. Yes. Yeah. So he's... The whole year? Yeah. So he holds the record, doesn't he, as an astronaut with the single space flight amount of days. So he's been up there yeah. for the most consecutive days. But there is there is a lady, isn't there, who holds the record for the most cumulative days in space, which was a lady called Peggy Whitson. And she's done 665 days cumulatively in space, which is, you know, a pretty long time. And the importance of this is we don't fully know. I say we, I say we like we're working for the European Space Agency. Or NASA, <laughs> like we, we don't fully know the impact on the body and what it means by being up in space for all that long. And so you're exposed to different things up there, different types of radiation compared to down on earth. And so they're interested to balance how long people go up and then when they come back, check out how they're doing. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, that, the, um, the American guy, he was part of a twin study. Did you read that? Cause he had a twin. So he was up there and then his twin was on earth and then they were, they were doing like obviously studies on the, the, the two of them at the same time or, or when they came back down, how it affected them differently and things like that. What do you reckon they did? Rock, paper, scissor to see which one of the twins went up. You'd be gutted, wouldn't you? <laughs> if you both, because the, the twin on Earth was an astronaut as well. Oh, I didn't know, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. So you would be, you'd be gutted that you weren't the one that got chosen, but oh well. So, um, what, so I think we've got two things now, but we'll do this one next. What do they do when they're up there? That was a question, wasn't it? Like, before we start, like, what's life on board like? What do they actually do with their time? So I was reading that we were talking earlier about the, the time zones and it flicking through 16 different sunrises and sunsets. What they do is they keep to a strict Earth day as much as possible to avoid all of that, okay. all of that, you know, getting a little bit, not knowing who or where you are. And so their day is pretty regimented and it's split into five minute chunks of time set by the ground control crew. So that you get up at six in the morning and everybody works to UTC, universal time, which is London time, basically. And so yeah, your day, your day starts at six o'clock and you've got a lot of maintenance and stuff that you need to do while you're out there. But one of the things that I had no idea about was about how much exercise they need to do. Yeah, they've got to work because they've got to maintain it. They, they, they have issues with um, muscle mass, loss of muscle, loss of bone, uh, bone density, things like that. 
because you're in micro gra- uh, zero gravity like all the time. So they have to do about two hours of exercise every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you, 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 one of those things that you just take for granted with being in gravity is that gravity is constantly pulling on our our body and on our system and making our muscles work. Whereas yeah. if you're out in space with that not happening, you can just start to wither away and just start to, yeah, you, you know, if you're not using your legs, it's like <laughs> you're not using your arms, you're not using your legs. So they, they've come yeah, up with this funny be. treadmill, haven't they? Where they sort of anchor themselves down to this treadmill and then run on it. Yeah. Yeah. You're essentially, yeah. You, you, there's a video, Tim Peake, like I said, he ran the, um, the London marathon, I think on it, but yeah, you're essentially, you, you've got all these straps pulling you down to yes. sort of represent, gra- re- replicate gravity. Then you can run while you're on the treadmill. Um, they, you were saying they've got an exercise bike with no seat because you don't need a seat. <laughs> yeah, right? You don't need a seat because yeah, you'll just end up floating. One of the, one of the weird things and watching some of the videos, um, I definitely, Definitely say to anybody listening now who's, who's half interested, just Google just about the International Space Station and just seeing people just floating around, going from like one node to another node and how they get around. They sort of like push themselves off from one wall as if they're swimming, as if you're pushing yourself off the edge of a swimming pool. They just float yeah. horizontally all the way to the other side. It's crazy. But what I then started reading is if you're in there, if you're in the International Space Station for six months, the calluses start to go off the bottom of your feet, off the soles of your feet. And instead, because uh, you're, you're not using them, you're not walking anyway, you're just yeah. floating the whole time. Yeah. And instead, you start to get calluses on the tops of your feet because you're sort of anchoring yourself down and to help yeah. yourself turn yeah, corners yeah. and stuff. You're sort of like hooking your feet onto stuff. That's just like a little weird knock on effect that I'd no idea about. Yeah. So they do their exercise. As we said, they do lots of experiments. They they run the experiments. They they do that. They've also got to maintain space station itself. They have to do spacewalks, don't they? Um, I think perhaps we'll talk about that in just a minute. You know, if you've got to go outside and and fix things. But like some of the day to day stuff, right? Eating is nuts. If you watch some videos of them eating things, because it's just like what you think it is. It just opens something. And it just floats <laughs> and then they can eat. <laughs> but there's all crazy things they got to think about. I saw one who, um, you know, they're not allowed to have crumbs, so they don't yeah. use bread. Yes. So they use wraps, like, you know, you know, instead, because you can't have crumbs floating off and like getting in all the instruments. Yeah. Because they, yeah, they say right. that if, if the, if toast were to, you know, if you were to have toast, that'd be a nightmare, all the crumbs and everything, all the bits that would go off that. If it then got off somewhere and stuck and then fungus started growing in the cracks of part of the space station, it could cause all sorts of issues. So yeah, pretty much all of their food that they have is dehydrated and they have to then open it like with a special pouch and then add water to it. And a lot of it is a, like a smoothie type drink. But it's yeah. apparently the, the, the taste is pretty bad. You sort of lose the proper taste that you'd had from it. I think it's similar if you're on an airplane. The food never tastes quite the same, does it? When you're up no. in an airplane, no, no, no. never tastes quite the same. But little things like salt and pepper, you're not allowed that. Well, you can have it, but it has to be in liquid form. There's some weird videos of like liquid form. Uh, salt yeah, and lots of stuff. Like, can't spit out your toothpaste. You've got to swallow it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like... Sleeping. Did you see them sleeping? They sleep in like a 
they they sleep in like a grow bag, like what my little girl used to sleep. You know, you know, if you've got kids, they sleep <laughs> in this funny little sleeping bag with armholes. Yes. They basically get in that, strap themselves in. Um, you because you don't need a pillow, do you? Because you don't need a pillow to rest your head on. So weird. Your head's just relaxed anyway. You just you just relax and everything just relaxes and you just fall asleep. So you're in the size of something about the same size as a telephone box. And also there's no concept about which way you're sleeping. You can sleep upside down or the right way up. It doesn't make any difference because, yeah, like I say, that there's no concept of what the right way up is in space, which is pretty mad. But one of the things that just about your general day to day, which is something that I'm sure loads of people would be thinking then once we've started saying about there's no, you can't spit your toothpaste out and there's no running water. Just simple day to day things like going to the toilet. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's, that's not funny that's not quite as straightforward well, well i didn't actually look at this and you told me that you were going to talk about this so my guess is do you have to connect yourself onto some sort of hoover <laughs> and essentially <laughs> as you're going it's sucking is that what happens is exactly it that is exactly <laughs> what they have to do so each each astronaut gets assigned their own tube if you like with um yeah oh. vacuum and suction and yeah that's that's what happens but what what then happens with the waste water is that it then gets reused and then ends up going being filtered via a filtration system and then coming back as drinking water which i guess is what happens down on earth anyway but i suppose if it's you know, you know, it's come from one of the six people that you're living with. It might be a slightly different, but um, yeah, apparently it's it's a it's a big old deal. I, I'm reading about the their Russia did have a space station called Mir, and it had a power failure, and the astronauts had to rely on using bags for going to the toilet, and morale quickly oh, fell on that on that space station. People quickly fell out with each other. Um, just because of that simple hygiene thing. So it's it's a pretty big deal for them just being able to have um looking after themselves that way. Yeah, right. Okay. So spacewalks. <laughs> <laughs> that was next on my list. <laughs> so they gotta do a spacewalk. Let's let's uh, jump past that quickly. Um they do spacewalks, don't they? They have to go out the guy into space. I know. What? Connected on, what if they float off? Oh goodness! Um, yeah, they do quite a lot of them. There's been what two over two hundred, nearly two hundred and fifty spacewalks, I think. Yeah, the exact number as of today, which um, this will go up, is as of today there have been two hundred and forty-eight spacewalks that have happened since December nineteen ninety-eight, and they range from five minutes to about nine hours. But you you were saying to me in the week that you can actually see every spacewalk that's ever happened can't you yeah just quickly in case we've got any actual nasa listeners or, or space people they're called extravehicular activity an eva um i think spacewalk is just a term that everybody understands but an e- it's called an eva uh yeah but if you go onto nasa's website you can see every spacewalk that has ever happened uh the date you can click on it tells you all about it so for example uh, i just you feel free to go and look for some more. There's been three so far in 2022. The most recent one took place on March the 23rd. So what are we saying? Like six days ago, something like that. Um, 
It was six hours and 54 minutes. You can find out it was by Raja Chari and Matthias Maurer. And do you, want, do you want to know what they had to do? Go on, tell us. They have jobs. I'm sure everybody will understand this. Their major objective for the day was to install hoses on a radiator beam valve module that routes ammonia through the station's heat rejecting radiators to keep the systems at the proper temperature. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I could have done yeah. that. Obvious. I don't so, even understand uh, what it is there to do. No. So, <laughs> so yeah. So, the, yeah, they go out. Yeah, they go out and do things like that. The longest one was eight hours and 56 minutes. Um, yeah, crazy. I, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to ask our interviewee about that because pretty sure he's done one or two, hasn't yes. he? Yeah, yeah, he has. He's, he's definitely done two spacewalks. I was reading about with spacewalks, once you're exposed and you're, you're then out of the spaceship, they're obviously in a spacesuit. They're breathing pure oxygen as well for the length of the, um, for the length of the, the spacewalk that they're doing is that you're exposed to elements that other people would never, ever, normally ever get exposed to in as much that if you're facing the sun, the side of you that's facing the sun, it's about 250 degrees Celsius. And the backside of you, it's massively below freezing. That's like 200 below. So it's, it's like being, you know, a fire right in front of you and you're lying on ice right behind you. But yeah, there's, there's all sorts of reasons that they need to do them, mainly fixing things. Uh, but as, as you were saying, it must be a little bit scary thinking, am I actually end, going to end up floating off into space? Yeah, obviously nobody has. Do you know the space suit itself weighs 20 stone? Does it? 280 pounds. Now, obviously, when you're in space, that doesn't matter because there's no gravity. So, But if it was on the ground, when it's, when it's on the ground, yeah, the, the suit itself weighs yeah that's mental like 130 kilos or something like that wow i had no idea about that no i didn't look into that it's it's funny to yeah. to, to train to do your spacewalks they actually end up doing a lot of work underwater don't they that's the the wow. way that they then they then train and get into it and i was reading that you do for every for every hour of spacewalk that you're going to do, you end up doing about seven hours of underwater work. So scuba diving and, and getting yourself ready to then work in sort of that type of environment. Easily the most interesting thing I did this week was learning about how you become a space band. Oh, really? One of the, uh, one of the things that shocked me, you know, all space men and women, uh, all astronauts are, they are um, like qualified scuba divers because they have to be, because they train underwater, like yep. exactly like we were just talking about. Yes. So they're all qualified scuba divers. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. They have to get qualified at that before they can start some of the training. Some of the barriers to getting in. Now that makes sense. So what, what other things? Yeah. How, how do you then become an astronaut then? Oh, right. Well, I showed my boy this as well because he wants to be an astronaut and he's four. So I had to go through some of the things he needs. So I had to try and explain to him he needs to have a master's degree. So they've got a really, they've got a really good um, on NASA's website, like um, FAQ page about becoming an astronaut. Because obviously right. everybody, everybody, lots of people want to do it. You know, some of the things you think you need. Do you need to be a fighter pilot? No, you don't. Okay. Do you need to be in the, do you need to be in the military first? No, you don't need to do that either. You know, like some things that I thought that you probably need that you don't need. The, the, the annual salary, 
somewhere between $104,000 and $161,000, like things that you just never think. So, but you need, so you need to have a master's degree. They, that's a, a relatively new thing. Um, and one of those master's degrees has to be in, um, they want it to be in like a maths or a science thing. So engineering, biological science, physical science, computer science, or maths. Yeah. You, need a, you, got, you got a master's degree in one of those? Not yet. Okay. Well, let me tell you something else you need. You also need to have 2020 vision. Okay. Do you have I that? Might be, might be all right on that. Might be. You are allowed to you are allowed to wear glasses and you are allowed to have had laser eye surgery. Now I have got a dodgy left eye and I cannot have it corrected through surgery and glasses don't make any difference. So I'm out because my oh. eyes I cannot get my eyes to be 2020. Oh boo. Oh no. So so you need to anyway, so you need to have this degree. Um if you don't have a degree, you need to have one thousand hours of pilot time in a jet aircraft, which is pretty nuts. Yeah, and then if, if you're selected, you start doing, you do international space station systems training, spacewalk skills training, robotic skills training, Russian language skill training, aircraft flight readiness training. Like all sorts of things. It takes, about, it takes about two years. And so this year, they've just, uh, they've just chosen their 10, NASA have chosen their 10 new astronaut candidates from a field of 12,000 applicants. Wow. Wow. Which is interesting that you say that because all of those qualifications, that's to get yourself up there funded by one of the space stations. But there is something which is a little bit controversial, isn't there? That there are some people that have self-funded themselves and going up there. So they're, you know, travelers have paid for their own, their own journey into space. And yeah. they sometimes get referred to as space tourists which is a term that they generally dislike. But yeah, Roskomos, so the, the Russia Space Agency, they had somebody go up who did the first paid-for mission, and it was someone called Dennis Tito. And he apparently paid around $40 million to do it. Oh, wow. Yeah, 2001, wasn't it? I think he went up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's nuts. Um, So... Roskomos, so I, I'd read they're a bit more open to, to space tourism. NASA have only just started allowing it. I think, I think my date's right. I think the, the first privately funded um, space flight, if you like, that NASA are going to accept or allow takes place on the 30th of March. Okay, this year? I think, yeah, I think is tomorrow, if I've got my days right, with when this gets released. I think okay. it happens tomorrow. Uh, they're setting up four. They've got a four-person crew, and NASA have to approve it. So I think I don't know if if each of the space agencies have got like an allocation of of how many people they can send up in a year or something. And NASA are now allowed. I don't I don't know how that works. I think yeah, I'm I bet you're probably right. It'll be down to funding, won't it? Seeing as the majority of the funding comes from from NASA and from Russia, they probably get more of a say on who it is that can actually go up. Um, I think you said right at the top there that yeah. Tim Peake, the British uh, astronaut, he's the only person from Great Britain that's been on the International Space Station, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But so NASA have said, though, you have to use like commercial, um, like commercial vehicles and launch vehicles that they've approved. So stuff, you know, like the stuff like SpaceX, you know, they, they've, they've approved that as a, 
as a system. So, you, you know, you, you can't be flying up on something that, they, that they've never heard of, but I don't imagine that's ever going to be a thing. <laughs> no, I mean, you're thumbing a lift somehow to, to get yourself up there. Yeah, NASA are trying to, um, they want to stimulate, they call it low Earth, the low Earth orbit economy. So they want they want companies to, I guess, be competing with one one another because when that you know when there's competition, the, the the price of the technology and stuff comes down, doesn't it? Because everyone's doing it at the same time. Yeah, you can you can make it more viable if more than one person or more than one company are trying to do the same thing. Yes, yeah, that's it. So what NASA did in the end of 2021 is they awarded $415 million to three different companies. People might have heard of, of some of these. So Blue Origin was one that got some money, uh, NanoRacks, and then Northrop Grumman are the, the other two, where they were given money to then try and help fund creating a whole new international space station that will be orbiting the Earth. And that's because... The old one, it's been up there since 1998, but it has got an end life, hasn't it? It has got a date where it's all going to come to a Oh, yeah, dead, dead interesting. Yeah, 2031, they think, is going to be the the, the 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 day of its demise. And essentially what they're going to do, they're just going to crash it, aren't they? How Very much like what we read about Space Junk. They're going to bring it back down. And, uh, so, yeah, so I, I was reading the, the line I read about it is that NASA is planning for it to have a fiery end. So it's it's, yeah. going, to, it's going to effectively get burnt back up by re-entering our, our atmosphere. But not all of it, though, is it? Not all of it. No, no, no. The, the, most, the most recent nodes, and I guess the ones that are still worthwhile keeping, will disconnect. Um, and then this is nuts. They will disconnect with the plan B and they will then reconnect to these other new ones that are going to go up to basically make a new one. Yeah. Yeah. What? And, uh, and these companies, these companies that are producing new, new modules or, or new payloads, they're going to go up with their own propulsion system. So they don't need to connect to the International Space Station. They can go up and they can essentially get in orbit on their own so that when the ISS gets broken apart, parts of it will go and join them. How mad is that? There's some some amazing technology there, isn't there? Sorry. So yeah, the, the idea is that this will happen by by January 2031, and NASA have said that this money that they've awarded to these companies is that they want to make sure that one of these private companies has their new ISS up and running by 2031 before the the existing one is decommissioned and deorbited and uh, burns up. But how are they actually going to bring it down? Then we're saying that it's going to have a fiery end. How are they going to do that? It, this is so good because I, I think we've missed the bit here, like how it stays up there in the first place. Because I thought, and you know, we'd learned this with space junk that eventually gravity will pull it back down, yes. right? Because that's just how it works, unless it's got some sort of propulsion. And I thought it can't just have an infinite amount of fuel on there, so it just keeps giving a little boost and keeps it going. But what happens is every time somebody docks with it, either they give some of their fuel to the space station so that it can then give itself a little boost and keep going, or they give boost themselves, you know, like, almost like a tow. Yes. So as they're connected, they smash, they give it a little boost. But what that means is to bring it back down, they're going to do the exact opposite. So when, when things dock with the ISS, they're going to put on the brakes and they're going to slow the ISS down 
to a point where our gravitational field will pull it down and yes. they will crash it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's going to get stopped. Someone else is going to stop it. You're like Superman trying to stop a train. It's basically, they're going to send up a small little rocket that's going to put on its reverse afterburners and uh, it's going to stop it. Cool. You'll see that in the sky when that comes down. Surely, if we're saying about, um, about it burning up. So it's been up there since 1998. It'll be coming down 2031. It's already gone past where they expected it to go. I think it was actually due to come down in 20... It was due to be up there for about 15 years in the first place, wasn't it? And it's it's gone past what they thought its useful life would be. And they were talking about... So it's going into its third decade and they really expect some of the results from the experiments that they're doing are just going to have a massive impact on earth, on people down on earth with us now. Um, and they're expecting to have some huge breakthroughs. Did you read about any of the things that the ISS has contributed to for us here on earth? Yeah, uh, quite a few. There's, there's quite a few. And um, one of the things you mentioned earlier is water purification. So oh, their, yeah. techno- their technology in being able to purify what they've got has just come, has filtered down to earth. <laughs> nice. Uh, there. So that was one. Uh, you said it again, the robotic arms, you know, their tech yeah. is basically, you know, we, we can now, you know, they use robotic arms to go in and get tumors and stuff out of people, but that's the same technology that NASA are using. Do you know what I mean? Things like that. Yes. There's yeah. also one where they can, they can grow um, uh, like protein crystals. They can grow them in zero gravity that they can't do on earth or they can't do as easily on earth to cure muscular dystrophy. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Which is, pretty good and um that you know there there are um there are diseases where we lose bone bone density and bone mass but they've because they do so much work with exercise and you know that that physical stuff up in space to try and prevent it that all that knowledge is just coming back to earth yes that they can then adopt and use yeah and they've they've taken there have been some animals or living things that they've gone up there sort of along a similar thread. They took some flatworms up there. So flatworms are able to, if you cut off their, their heads or their tails, they can regenerate and grow themselves back. So they, they took them up there to then do that experiment on them and see what it might mean or what effect by living in zero gravity or microgravity, what that effect that has on cells rebuilding and the organs coming together. And they've done other stuff. They've, They've had um, some stuff with like mice embryos have taken them up there and then brought them back down to then see if they'd been up there for a, a long time. What effect does that have on f- future mice? Um, and just other things with it's, it's just some weird things that I was reading about fire. They were realizing that fire actually burns differently in space. And oh, wow. they then they then need to extinguish it in a slightly different way. So again, preparing for when hopefully we're a multi-planetary species, how do you then put out fire in the most effective way? And so there's all these little things or that they're doing. Or make fire. Put in. Or make fire. You know what I mean? Like if you knew how to make fire in zero gravity? Yeah. That sort of thing. Like, yeah. How does that work? If there's no oxygen? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Finding oxygen. Like, have they worked their way around that? There's all there's all, all sorts of things where they've they've put ants up in space and they've just measured their behavior. Like how do they change? How does the behavior of the colony get impacted by being in zero gravity? And it turns out that they do actually act differently. It's like, would us as humans have different ways of acting and responding if we're then constantly in 
a lot less gravity for whatever reason, and then they need to try and figure it out. So yeah, there's all sorts of things that they're doing, just mainly those things that we won't won't readily recognise on why stuff's being done on a daily basis. Yeah, we're getting to the end of this one, but I know that your takeaway, unbelievably, is the same as my takeaway, isn't it? I can't believe this. There are so many facts and figures about the International Space Station. There's so many interesting things about living up there, astronauts, so, so many things. We stumbled upon the same thing as being the best takeaway for people to know about. Not only that, we then we then researched the same second thing off the back of this thing. So I'll, I'll t- say the thing, and then you can say the second thing, and <laughs> know that we both did this, which is nuts, right? Okay, the International Space Station is the most expensive thing humans have ever built. Isn't that mental? It cost a, a ballpark $150 billion. That is mad, isn't it? $150 billion. So we then did the same thing, right? It then got me thinking, what are the other super most expensive things that have been put out there? And I started to think, well, how much is the Burj Khalifa? So I started to look that up and that was $1.56 billion, which was a hundred times less than what the international space station is which is mind-boggling it's just funny that yeah you and i both thought about going down that that route of um research yeah costs about four billion dollars a year by the way to keep it going the international space station four billion dollars a year that's nuts yeah so the international space station that was your choice could you could you talk about it for a bit yeah i really think i could like i said at the beginning i had no idea really why it was up there or or what what was the purpose of it and so just to now know that it is basically just a super high tech world class orbiting laboratory where people are going up there to try and further expand our understanding of what's going on or what zero gravity has what impact that has on us what that might mean for us then to go and be a, a multi-planetary species it was super interesting. Like how it started, Russia was up there first, the US were there a month later. How many people have been there? How about yourself? No, well, like I said at the start, I mean, the only thing about it, I did not know it was a giant laboratory floating up in space. That's my number one takeaway. That, you know, that's essentially what it is and the, and the sort of the things that we've learned off the back of it really interested me. Two quickly important things, though, I think we should say. We, we, I will repeat, we have a fantastic interview coming out on Friday, don't we? With actual Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield. I'm so excited to ask him all of those types of questions about actually being on there, what it was like, what the whole experience is like, that whole yeah. thing that we can't get from yeah. our research. Yeah, super excited to so, speak. Uh, that, that'll be on Friday. Second most important, excellent, exciting thing is that next week's episode is our listener choice. So if you aren't following us on any of the socials at Two Guys One Topic, you'll have missed out on this. But we did put it to a vote, didn't we? Like we do each series. What would you like us to do? Um, we took our four favourite answers, put them to a vote, um, and uh, we've ended up with our next episode, haven't we? And do, do you want to announce it? Because I can't say it, so you're going to have to say it. <laughs> so, listener choice episode, which is out next week, will be. 
Worcestershire. <laughs> Neither can you. Worcestershire. I can't say it. Worcestershire. Worcestershire sauce. Worcestershire. Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> we'll have worked out by the episode. We'll, we'll, hopefully, everybody oh, understands it. Oh, so, thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the episode about the International Space Station. Um, like I said, if you do want to get involved on the socials, it's at Two Guys One Topic. Send us a message, um, give us some suggestions of episodes, and we'll, we will do them in the future. Otherwise, we will be with you on Friday with our fantastic expert interview that's coming up. So, thank you very much for listening. Get out there and share some ISS knowledge.